Welcome to Bakersfield First Assembly of God's podcast. Pastor James is fired up and ready to preach. I hope you enjoy this sermon. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for taking the time out of your evening to come to Bible study. I mean, oh, it's it's important that we dig into the Word for ourselves. You hear me talk a lot about the importance of us uh, having our own personal uh, Bible study time. There are certain things that can only happen through His Word. And if we are in a daily devotion reading His Word, it's, we've got to read the Scriptures. We've got to have, uh, the, from the Old Testament and New Testament, we need to know the whole counsel of God, the whole Word of God. And so Wednesday nights is our chance to get together and dig deeper. And so I hope you uh, will dig deeper with me tonight. I do want to let you know that usually after the service, I like to hang out and chat with some folks. Tonight I've got to run. I've got a board meeting right after my Bible study tonight. So forgive me for having to sneak out quickly after service. Book of Galatians. We're almost done. Can you believe it? I'm going to have to look up to see when this started. And I've been thinking about what's the next step. Wednesday night for me is Bible study. I love studying a whole book of the Bible at a time. And so I'm praying about what will be. I like to swap from New Testament and Old Testament. So one of my favorite books of the Bible, which will sound strange, is the book of Ecclesiastes. I love the book of Ecclesiastes because the author is cynical. <laughs> he's he's uh, struggling and it's just an amazing thing to see the heart of someone who knew God and has walked away, King Solomon. And, uh, but we can gain so much out of that. So I don't know if I'll do Ecclesiastes or something else, but we'll, we'll dive into another book of the Bible. Stand firm in your freedom. That's the theme for Galatians. Don't ever forget it. From now on, if, you'll, if somebody asks you, you know that scripture that if Christ sets you free, you're free indeed? You'll know where it comes from and, and what uh, the book of Galatians is all about. We talked last week about being crucified or being conceited. Because the fruit of the Spirit can never be wrong or evil, there's no law against them. They can never be bad. Love, joy, peace, all that stuff is always good. In addition, legalism through the law will not bear fruit. We can't bear the fruit of the Spirit through the law, only by the Spirit. And the reason believers are to no longer live a sinful lifestyle is because that lifestyle has been crucified on the cross when we accepted Christ as our Savior and Lord. But like any crucifixion, it takes time for that person there to die. And that old man, that old flesh we have, it, it takes a lifetime for it to die. So the sinful nature has been crucified, but we still struggle with the influence of sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. And we will eventually be saved from the very presence of sin. And so keeping in step with the Spirit means following the Spirit's leading without wavering or taking detours or shortcuts. Usually if we take a shortcut, it takes twice as long. And when we walk in the Spirit, we won't purposely stir up strife. Part of the maturity of a believer is we don't stir up strife in the church or with other people. We're not one of those troublemakers. Uh, and we've all seen people in that life, surely it was none of us. But we've seen other people like that, whether it's, whether it's at work or at church or around the water cooler, they just love stirring things up, you know. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? No, I never heard about that. Yeah, they said this about you. They did? Well, that, you know, and just there are people like that that thrive on controversy. But I'm telling you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, 
That shouldn't be us. We're peacemakers. We're not stirrer-uppers. So that, that's what we discussed last week. The title for tonight is, Am I My Brother's Keeper? Now, you know where that, that phrase comes from. Who, where does it come from? Who said it? Cain, that's right. After he killed Abel, God says, hey, where's your brother? And Cain arrogantly and condescendingly say, am I my brother's keeper? And that question is echoed through the centuries. And so it comes to today, are we our brother's keeper? To a certain extent, we are. We are our brother's keeper to a point. There are limits on that. Well, we are called to, to bear one another's burdens to a point. And so we'll dig into that. We won't finish it tonight. We'll carry it on next week. But first, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may be tempted. You also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Now, I want us to notice that verse 2. Let's look, look back at verse 2. Carry each other's burdens. Then look at verse 5. For each one should carry his own load. So it seems like a contradiction there, but there are actually two different words in the Greek and two different responsibilities. We'll, we'll get into it, but we won't finish it up tonight. But I wanted you to see that. Verse 2 says carry each other's burdens, but verse 5 says you've got to carry your own load. So we'll see what that means. Roman numeral 1, let's talk about our responsibility to others. We do have a responsibility to each other as believers, especially as believers in Christ. And so there are times of capital letter A... Of confrontation, loving confrontation. We could even call it accountability. Part of being believers in Jesus Christ is we keep each other accountable. And there are times where things have to be confronted. We see, number one, we have a responsibility to lovingly confront Christians who sin. Now, there's a, there is a practice I, God's word is so practical. There are steps how to do things. God shows us how to do things. And so if we see someone who has sinned or sinned against us, God says, this is how you manage it, knowing that we would have to deal with this situation. So let's look at Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, it can also just read, if your brother sins Go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That principle of two or three witnesses is in Old Testament and New Testament. Someone could not be put to death on the testimony of only one person. 
Yeah, you, we've heard the saying, he said, she said, you know, when, it's, when there's no witnesses. And so there was a safeguard put in in the scriptures, and especially for the nation of Israel, that no one could be put to death because of one person's accusation. There had to be two, even better, three witnesses. And this two to three principle is also in the New Testament right here. But it also says, do not bring an accusation before an elder without two or three witnesses. I had a situation one time, I've, I've shared this before, where there was an accusation against one of the church leaders at a church I pastored years ago. And I was troubled because even bringing this to that person's attention would be devastating if it weren't true. And so I, I prayed and said, Lord, what do I do? I mean, do I bring this up when it, it is so, so destructive and, and uh, salacious? And the Lord gave me that scripture. Do not bring an accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses. And that helped me solve it. I don't have two or three witnesses. I'm not to bring this accusation. And time has shown that that was the right decision. Bless God. It doesn't always work out that way, but it did for me then. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Boy, this is, this is heavy stuff. Have you ever known of a church to discipline someone publicly? That is a risky thing. I know of churches who have faced lawsuits for that very thing. And so it is interesting how, and it's so important that we follow Scripture carefully. And most of the times we jump to uh, step two or step three. Or step four, having nothing to do with them. We need to follow the practice that scripture has laid out. A lot of times as a pastor in my years of, of, of experience, I found that people tell me things about someone expecting me to do something about it. Right? You're skipping some steps there. You don't bring it to the pastor the first step. If you see your brother sin or is your brother has sinned against you, it's your responsibility to go to them privately. And this is what God's trying to do. He's trying to stop gossip. He's trying to stop false accusation because if your brother has sinned or your sister has sinned and you go to them privately and they own it, then you're done. They repent. That's as far as it goes. You don't tell anybody else. It's resolved. But a lot of times, like I said, people skip that step. They don't want to go to someone privately. That's a scary thing to do, to go up to somebody and say, hey, listen, I feel like you've sinned or you've sinned against me. Now, first of all, you don't do it unless you've searched your own heart and prayed a lot. Don't, we don't confront without seeking the Lord's guidance first. But when we do, this is most conflicts in the church and in families would be gone if we'd follow these steps. Most of the time, well, some of the time, you can resolve it on step one. You, and then, praise God, it doesn't have to go any further. But if it's unresolved, and, it, and we're talking about a sin that leads to death. We're not talking about, you know, somebody, you know, uh, slight, you know gave you a, a dirty look or something like that. That doesn't lead to death. Well, I guess in some places it can lead to death, a dirty look. But uh, so if there's, there's a sin, a serious sin that leads to death, we confront, lovingly confront accountability. And if they refuse to repent, 
That's when you bring others along with you. Doesn't have to be pastors. It can be other mature believers, as we're going to see, those who are spiritual. Only those who are spiritual should handle this kind of confrontation at that next level. And again, if they still refuse to repent, then you treat them as an unbeliever. And sometimes this is what you have to do uh, if, if a Christian continues to live in sin. Let's say they're, they're living uh, and not married. They're living together and they're not married, and that, yet they profess to be a Christian. At some point, you have, you have to respond, how do you handle that? And the best way is, if you've already followed this process, is treat him as an unbeliever. That means witness to him, pray for him, try to bring him, bring him back to the Lord. And that's the purpose of confrontation in, in the scriptures, it's always the goal of confrontation is repentance and restoration. God doesn't want to send people to hell. That's what the Bible says. God is not willing that any should perish. That's the last resort. And so God is always trying to get people to repent so they can be restored. The goal of confrontation is not to crush someone. It's not to break them. It's to bring them back to the Lord. So number two, we must first judge ourselves before we ever attempt to confront someone else. This is important. You know Matthew five, or 7, verses 1 through 5. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, a lot of people stop right there. and In fact... They, I, I don't know if this is accurate, but I, I read it somewhere on the internet, so it must be true, uh, that the most popular scripture a generation ago was John 3.16. The most popular scripture, most quoted scripture for this generation is Matthew 7.1. Don't judge me, bro. You hear that all over Facebook. Don't judge me, bro. Nobody wants to be judged. Now, at first glance, it seems like it's wrong to judge. But that's not what it's saying. It's wrong to judge unfairly or inaccurately. There are times where the Bible says, you can see it in 1 Corinthians 5, judge that brother. So there's a time for judgment, and then there's a time for us to let God handle it. So let's finish the scripture, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Context is so important. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your eye and you're beating him on the head with it? You hypocrite. (laughs) First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now this is so important. When we are guilty of the same thing we're condemning others for, we are blinded. Now there is a time to judge, but it's when you've judged yourself first with the same standard, the same measures. How many of you know sometimes we hold people to higher standards than ourselves? And that should not be. If we're going to hold anybody to a standard, we, we need to have the same standard. I, I, I won't go too crazy on this because, you know, I don't want to be banned you know, from the Internet. 
But how many times have we seen our leaders not following the instructions for COVID? When a leader makes a law, they better follow it. And it, it, has, it has caused a, a loss of respect of leadership, or trust, I should say, because our leaders are telling us to do one thing, and they are doing the, the opposite. That's, that's called hypocrisy, and no one likes a hypocrite. And so in the same way, if we're judging our brother, we better be able to match up ourselves. And if we hold other people to a standard different than ours, then we're a hypocrite. And so that's some pretty strong words from Jesus. Now, I didn't get too far on a political soapbox. Everybody still with me? We're good? Okay, we're good. But that has really bothered me. And so it just behooves us that first get the board out of our own eye. And then it says, then you can see. You can't help your brother with a speck in his eye if you've got a board blinding yourself. We need to take out our own hypocrisy, our own sin, and then when we get that out of our, our vision, we can really help somebody. And that's, that's what God wants us to do is to help people. He wants us to help set them free. Okay, number three. The goal of confrontation or accountability is to bring a person to repentance, as I said. And let's look at this at 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a man living with his mother-in-law. And so Paul said, bring discipline, bring church discipline on this man. And they had obviously taken the other steps, but he was still in the church. So they said, he needs to be removed. Well, we see in 2 Corinthians that he, the man repented. Remember, that's the goal, is repentance. Even excommunication is so that they'll repent and come back to God. It's not like a permanent damnation. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to get people to have conviction so they'll return to the Lord. That should always be the church's heart. Sinners coming back to, the, to their father. Isn't that our desire? We want to see people. And you know what? If we're going to reach the lost, they're going to come in and they're going to have a lot of the world on them, right? We need to love them and receive them as they are and God will change them and transform them as we, as we disciple them. This is, this is what discipleship is all about. And I've sh shared a story before. We had a lady come into our church, another church I pastored, and she was fresh out of the world, off the streets, fresh out of drugs. And I, man, I'm telling you what, her life was a mess. And what had been so sad is she had done drugs for so long, she had never gotten a driver's license. And she was in her 50s. And so, and this is what happens on, on a side. When people go into drug addiction, they immediately at that point stop, many times stop maturing emotionally and and, and uh, mentally. And so this woman was locked into a 15-year-old when she started taking drugs, had never gotten a driver's license. When she came into the church, man, everybody's like, I mean, everybody was looking at her just so obviously from the world and, and lost and, you know, and not sanctified. Words coming out of her mouth weren't necessarily sanctified. But you know what? I was so proud of our church. They just 
embraced her, loved her, discipled her, and she began to change from the inside out. How I many know we can change the outside and still be full of dead man's bones? We changed from the inside out. And she went home to be with the Lord a few years ago, and she had been faithful to the Lord ever since she came back, Lord. I was just so, so touched at how God saved her and, and changed her. So in any, in any sense, so here was this man. He had, he had sinned. He had been removed from the church. And then he repented. And guess what? They wouldn't let him back in. <laughs> and so Paul had to write him again and, and said this in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you have become sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow, this is what we're looking for. When someone repents, there's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. What God is looking for is a genuine godly sorrow for our sins. And if we have that, we'll repent of our sins, and that leads to salvation. The godly sorrow leads to repentance. So our first responsibility to others is confrontation or accountability. Letter B, capital letter B, the next goal is restoration. Our goal, number one, for those who have sinned is always to restore them. That is our goal. We want to see sinners saved. We want to see backsliders come home. That's what it's all about. You know, it was so exciting on Sunday. There had to be a dozen hands raised for salvation on Sunday. We had 12 visitor cards turned in. I mean, it was a special day. And, and I'm telling you, that's what it's all about. Isn't that what church should be. That's what I'm telling you. Everybody gets fired. Every Christian gets fired up when someone gets saved. Don't we love the teen challenge ladies? We we're so glad to see them again because they remind us of the joy of our salvation. That was us maybe in a, in a different way, but we were all sinners, weren't we? We all needed grace. And so I just, I love the teen challenge ladies because they're like baby birds. I mean, they just, they just feed me, feed me, feed me. And when uh, I pastored down in, near Ventura, I got to speak at their chapels once a month. And I just loved it because they were so hungry for God's word. And so it reminds us of the joy of our salvation. And so that's what we want. We want restoration. And you know what? We've all needed it at some point in our life. Maybe it wasn't a major sin, but we all needed to be restored to the right place with the Lord. And so the word restore in this passage of Galatians means to mend what has been broken or torn, to repair, to put in order, to strengthen. Letter B, I love this. It is used for the setting of broken bones, mending torn nets, or bringing warring factions together in peace. So think about this. When we lovingly confront someone in sin and they repent, it's like a bone being set so it can heal. Anybody ever had a broken bone? 
okay, I broke my, my wrist my junior year of high school. It was in football, of course. All my injuries come from sports. But I went to tackle a guy much bigger than me, and I ended up with the broken wrist. And so I knew it because I, it, I, heard, I heard it break. It was a, like a wet stick being snapped. And I, I, and I immediately felt this pain. And so I went to hold my arm like this, and my arm hung down like, like this in a C. So I was like, okay, that's not right. Uh, and, in ter- and it was both, both bones, the ulna and the radius were broken. But the doctor had to set that. And he would, he, I remember him in the cast squeezing the cast to set those bones. That was not fun. But if you don't set the bone, it won't grow back right and it'll, it'll be weak. And so in this, that's what restoration is. We got to set the bone. We got to set people back on the right place where they belong. And here is a condition. Number two, only those who are spiritual should conduct the, the work of restoration. This is what it says in Galatians. Why do you think that is? Why is it? Yes. Good. That person should more recognize the Holy Spirit and how to bring healing. Yes. 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 Good. That's, that's excellent. It requires wisdom. And wisdom is a gift of the Spirit, but it comes with mature, spiritual maturity. And to help people walk through their forgiveness. Because sometimes repentance isn't complete until there is, there is uh, a sense of res, uh, not just restoration, but paying back. Remember when Zacchaeus said, I'll pay back everyone I've... Sometimes repentance requires restitution. So there's this whole process of repentance. There's godly sorrow, there's repentance, there's restoration, but sometimes it requires restitution. You have... And sometimes that's truly financial. Other times it is... The restitution is to go to that person and ask for forgiveness. That's part of the restitution. And so what are some other reasons why only the the spiritually mature should do the work of restoration? Those were great answers. What else? Yes, Jay. Gentleness. Excellent. Yes, gentleness in... Because... How many know that we can be too harsh on somebody and it, it can hinder their restoration process? We, we, we do it with gentleness because we understand grace. We've received grace. Again, we're not, you know, love must be tough sometimes. We have to use tough love, but we have to use grace. Another thing that is so important that only those that are spiritual is that those are in the restoration process can be tempted themselves. And so the, a mature believer will recognize that and be on guard. Listen, when you, when you step into someone's world, 
you know, as, as a pastor, I have learned things I never wanted to know. I have heard stories that have kept me awake at night. I have restored marriages. I've restored people that are in the depths of sin. And, and to do that, you, you have to not, you know, practice the sin, but you step into that world of consequence. And I, I have had people devastated and broken, and I've had people so angry. I had this one person beating on the conference table, and I thought, should I do something? Should I call somebody? You know, am I next? But just the devastation that people have experienced. I understand this scripture because you can come out of that and feel like, wow, almost, almost soiled by it, certainly affected by it. And so it is important that when we bring someone through that restoration process, we recognize that we have to be on our guard spiritually. Number one, we can fall the same way. You know, I, I know a story of a, of a woman whose father was unfaithful and left the family, and she was so devastated by that. And yet, when she became an adult and married, she did the same thing. Even though she had been on the, the receiving end of that, she had, you know, she had to break that, that curse, that generational curse that was carrying through her family. And, and so she was tempted in the same way, even though she had experienced the pain of it on the other side. Well, that's as far as we're going to go tonight. Uh, we're going to dig a little deeper in that very subject next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. It shows us how to function, how to, how to lead a church, how to bring people out of sin and restore them to you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have wisdom. We would have gentleness. We would have compassion. Lord, we would not judge without judging ourselves first. And so, Lord, I just, I just pray, especially for the church leaders, God, give us strength. Lord, we want to do the right things, and I pray for, for the pastoral staff. I pray for our boards, Lord, that lead this church, God. Give us the wisdom and gentleness and the spiritual maturity we need to lead your church. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, folks. Thank you for joining us today. Our worship service begins at 1030 every Sunday. You can join us in person or online. We broadcast live on both Facebook and YouTube. We would love for you to join us and be our guest this Sunday. Our address is 4901 California Avenue, Bakersfield, California. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed day.